This is Diane Horn, your host on the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM by mobile app and on the web at kexp.org. My guest this morning is Tor Hansen. Tor is a conservation biologist, a Guggenheim Fellow, and winner of the John Burroughs Medal. His books include Feathers, The Impenetrable Forest, The Triumph of Seeds, and the children's favorite, Bartholomew Quill. Tor Hansen is here to tell us about his most recent book, Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees, published in 2018. Welcome, Tor. Well, thank you, Diane, for having me on. Why did you write Buzz? What is your purpose? Well, Buzz is a book that was inspired in part by some research I did years ago in Central America, where I was studying big rainforest trees and how they functioned as a population. And I had gone out into the landscape and genetically fingerprinted all the adult trees of a particular species. And with that genetic data, I could track the movement of seeds across the landscape and the movement of pollen across the landscape and understand how dividing that forest into patches and fragmenting it was affecting this population. So it was a fascinating project, but one of the things that really caught my attention was the pollen movement. I knew from that genetic data that something up in the tops of those rainforest trees, way up there out of sight in the canopy, was moving pollen around, not just between neighboring trees, but among trees that were a mile and a half apart. And because those trees were in the pea family with these big, beautiful purple pea flowers, just like the pea flowers in your garden or the sweet peas in your backyard, I knew that something up there had to be bees. And so I got fascinated by this process. You know, how are they moving this pollen so far? And so I co-opted a friend of mine who's an entomologist, and we hired a local field assistant who was handy with a crossbow. And we went out there and shot lines up into the canopy and hauled up all manner of insect traps trying to catch these bees. And we caught a grand total of zero bees. It was a total flop, total failure in terms of science. But it sparked this fascination within me about bees and their relationships to flowers. And I began looking for ways to chase after them in my work and also in daily life ever since. And so I've had this long fascination with the bees. So when the opportunity came up to do another book, it was a topic that was certainly on my mind. Where do bees come from? What is their evolutionary history? That's a great question. So the evolution of bees is something that's often sort of overlooked in our discussions of bees, but they have a marvelous evolutionary story. They evolved from the wasps. Wasps came first and had been around for millions of years before the bees came along. And this all happened back during the middle of the Cretaceous period, which is a time that was famously dominated by the dinosaurs. But If you look past those lumbering beasts, there were were a lot of other interesting things happening at that time, including the spread and diversification of the flowering plants. And bees evolved at the very same time from their wasp ancestors by changing one particular habit. They diverged from this long history of wasps being hunters and scavengers out there searching the landscape for insects or spiders to attack and take home. They left that carnivorous habit behind and became vegetarians, provisioning themselves and their offspring solely from the products provided by flowers. 
And it was a very fortuitous time to make that shift because here were the flowering plants just beginning to really spread in the landscape. And the bees co-evolved with the flowers from that time forward. And in fact, that co-evolution helped spur rapid diversification on both sides of the equation. How does a bee perceive the world? How does a bee see the world differently than we do? I love trying to imagine the world from a bee's perspective. And the first thing to remember is that they experience a lot of the world through their antennae, which is sort of an odd concept for us. But, you know, when I was a kid, we always called the antennae on bees or other insects feelers. And then somewhere along in my education as a biologist, that was drummed out of me and I learned that these are antennae. They're not feelers. But now that I know even more about them, I happen to think the kids have it right. And feelers is a marvelous name for these appendages because they are all about feeling and about sensation. There are at least seven sensory organs located on the antennae of bees. And it's everything from their sense of smell to their sense for sensing wind direction and air pressure and touch, taste, all of these things that are located on those wonderfully flexible organs sticking out of the tops of their heads. So the antennae are one of the primary ways they experience the world. And they do, in fact, communicate among one another by scent, by pheromones quite a bit. So they experience a lot of communication They also seek out their flowers that they're after by scent in many cases, just picking up these tiny bits of molecules of odor drifting in what is called a scent plume from a blossom that can be hundreds of meters or even half a mile away. And they use those antennae to to follow that plume back to its source. And as they get closer then, the eyes really start to come into play. And they have these marvelous, of course, big compound eyes on the fronts of their head, these faceted eyes that really are, if you can imagine, a whole bunch of individual facets all wired directly to the brain. So unlike our eyes, which are these flexible organs that move and refocus the light depending on what we are looking at, the bee's eyes are fixed in their focal distance. So from long distances, the world is a colorful blur them, a scented and interesting but blurry world. But as they get closer to when they narrow down, say, the search for a flower or a a nest site or what have you, things come rapidly into focus. And they, in fact, have a very good sense of vision up close and also a sense of vision that is very acutely tuned to motion. And if you can imagine something passing across our field of vision, we see it with, you know, two eyes. If you imagine that same thing passing in front of the field of vision of a bee, it sparks all of these individual reactions from all of those facets. I think of it sort of like, you know, dragging your fingers across the strings of a harp. And this is how it must be for a bee to see something moving. And it gives them this wonderful sense of motion, you know, and sensitivity to motion which helps explain, for those of us who sometimes try to catch bees in butterfly nets, why they often dodge right around that net because they can see it coming in a way that we can hardly imagine. Would you tell us about the different types of bees? So many types. You know, when we think of bees, we immediately think of the one bee that we know best, the honeybee, the domestic honeybee, which is a marvelous bee, fascinating in its habits of 
living by the thousands or tens of thousands in these hives surrounding a single queen. It's a marvelous history and uh, natural history for that species. But there are a full 20,000 species of bees in the world, more species than all of the birds and the mammals put together and then some, a wonderfully diverse group of organisms that have fascinating life histories as you look among that diversity. So we're talking about mason bees and sweat bees and orchid bees and leaf cutter bees and carpenter bees and, of course, bumblebees and many, many groups of bees that we aren't even very familiar with but are quite fascinating. And the vast majority of them are quite different, really, from the honeybees in that honeybees do live in these massive hives. And the bee we might know best aside from honeybees would be the bumblebee. And they too are a highly social species with hundreds living together in a nest. But most bees are solitary creatures. Their lives are quite different. They're single females building a nest somewhere in a hole in the ground or in a crevice in a piece of wood or among some rocks. And they live a solitary lifestyle, gathering just enough pollen and nectar to make a little ball of what's called bee bread, or if it's a little more soupy, they call it bee pudding in some documents. This wonderful food upon which they will lay a single egg that will then hatch and the larva will live on that ball of bee bread as it matures, out of sight, tucked away in a crevice in a single cell, the mother bee will never even see that next generation of bees. She will make as many of those cells as she can during her usually rather brief adult life. And then those young bees will mature out of sight in their nest and emerge the following year to start the whole cycle over again. So a brief mating flight, usually at the beginning of their season, and then for the rest of the spring or summer, they are working hard to provision their solitary nests. I'm Diane Horn, and my guest is Tor Hansen, author of the book, Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees. And you are tuned to the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on listener-powered KEXP, 90.3 FM by mobile app, and on the web at kexp.org. In what ways have bees been part of human history? So we think of bees, again, in terms of our relationship with honeybees, a relationship that dates back thousands of years in that we domesticated them at least by the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, where there are clear records of people moving sophisticated clay hives up and down the River Nile in time with the seasonal blooms of wildflowers or crops. So we know that the art and science of beekeeping was well established then, and our use of bee products was not limited to honey. In fact, it was the wax in some periods of time that was even more valuable than that sweet, sweet treat. So the wax and the honey, the medicinals, all of these uses for bee products made them very special to people and a very unique relationship, really, when we think about insects in that we really have an instinctive aversion to most of these insects and other arthropods, you know, things with an exoskeleton, which is very different from our body structure where the structural bits are hidden on the inside in the form of bones. Well, all of those arthropods are very foreign to us, and most of them you wouldn't hear about fondly in the news or you wouldn't use them to advertise you know, a can of tuna fish or something like the bumblebee brand. 
Bees are special because of that long relationship that we've had from honey, how sweet it was, the sweetest thing in our diet until the advent of refined sugars. And the wax, you know, particularly in the light that it provided through wax candles, but also this huge variety of other uses from ancient dental fillings to writing tablets and all sorts of things. So that is well-established as part of the reason that we are close to bees. But there's a new line of research and thinking that suggests our relationship really dates back millions of years. And this is some fascinating work being done by nutritional anthropologists, particularly a woman named Alyssa Crittenden at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who's done some wonderful work with the Hadza people of Tanzania which are a hunter-gathering group still living a very traditional lifestyle in the very same landscape where our species is thought to have evolved. And they are honey hunters. They gather honey. This has been known for decades. But Alyssa was the first person to ask, well, how much honey do they eat? And she measured it as a proportion of their diet over the course of a year, and it measured out to a full 15% of the diet came in the form of honey. And that number would be even higher if you included all the grubs and the pollen that are also included in those combs when they're harvested. People aren't just getting a sweet treat now and then. They're looking for honey every single day from wild honeybees, but also from at least six other honey-making varieties in that landscape, which is really fascinating but it takes on even more power in an evolutionary context in that the story of human evolution has always been a story about brain size. And when anthropologists have looked back at our history and seen increases, substantial increases in the size of our ancestral brains, they've always tried to associate those increases with some increase in calories because the brain is what they say in the literature, metabolically expensive tissue. It takes a lot of energy to fuel the brain. A full 20% of our daily calories may go to fuel something which takes up only 2% of our body weight. So it's expensive. And if you want to evolve a bigger brain, you have to have more calories to fuel it. So we have looked back at the past then and said, aha, an increase in brain size, perhaps this is associated with the advent of hunting and access to meat. Or perhaps it's associated with better tool use or cooperation that increased the caloric intake of these ancient primates. And also the advent of cooking, which freed up more calories, substantially more calories from the food in our diet. Well, now looking at the modern use of honey in the hunter-gatherer diet and asking, well, gosh, would our ancestors have done anything different? And probably not. Here was this marvelous food source out there for them in the landscape, the most energy-rich food in nature. They were probably eating it all the time. After all, chimpanzees eat honey, so why not Australopithecus and Homo erectus and Homo habilis, these ancient bipedal primates from which we have descended. So it's a marvelous story suggesting that, in fact, our primordial sweet tooth may have led us to bees and to honey, and in a sense helped make us who we are. How key are bees to the quality of our food supply now? Well, you often will hear it said that every third bite of food in the human diet 
is dependent in some way or another upon bees because of the great service they provide in terms of pollination, not only of wild plants, but of so many of our crops. And there are a lot of ways to parse those numbers. You can look at global crop production, and in fact, yes, about 35% of global production is related in one way or another to bee pollination. But you can also look at the diversity of foods in the diet. And then bees seem even more important. The, the types of things that make food tasty and interesting. If you look at our top 110 food crops, fully 85% of them either depend upon or benefit substantially from bee pollination. So for my own edification on this and what I wrote about in the book was an experience of trying to look for bees in an unexpected place. In that if you wander into a farmer's market or you go to the produce aisle at the grocery store and see this wonderful array of fruits and vegetables and nuts, the step to pollination is very evident. It's very intuitive. Aha, yes, you can sort of imagine that in a world without bees, a farmer's market would be hardly very colorful and interesting at all. But I wanted to think about bees in an unusual setting, so I went to McDonald's and had a Big Mac. I ordered a Big Mac sandwich because I happen to know the recipe, as many of us do, you know, the two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, this sort of thing, that is a famous advertising jingle for that famous sandwich. And I decided I would dissect the Big Mac and make two piles, one that included the things you could eat in a world without bees and all of the things that are dependent in one way or another on bees in a separate pile. And that long advertising jingle was reduced to simply two all-beef patties bun. Because all of those other things, the lettuce, the pickles, even the special sauce, depend in some way or another upon bees and the services that they provide through pollination. You are tuned to the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM by mobile app and on the web at kexp.org. I'm Diane Horn, and my guest is Tor Hansen, author of the book, Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees. What are some of the challenges that humans have created for bees? Well, in the 21st century, you really can't talk about bees without confronting the challenges that they do face in the modern era. And this really burst upon the scene in 2006 with the advent of something called colony collapse disorder, which was a terrible malady afflicting honeybees and particularly the domestic hives that people were observing and were close to and they could see this happening. Whole hives emptying out in a mysterious fashion so that commercial beekeepers, the people who really know how to take care of bees better than any of us, were losing 30, 40, in some cases 80 or 90 percent of their hives over the course of a season. And so this gained headlines around the world because we are so dependent upon honeybees for crop pollination in many of our particularly industrially farmed landscapes, this raised alarm bells. And it set off a mad research scramble to understand why. And now it's been over 10 years, and really only one thing has become crystal clear over that period of time, and that is that it's more than one thing. There is no single factor, no smoking gun that is responsible for bee declines. Rather, it is a combination of factors. In fact, many experts are now beginning to call this a multiple stress disorder. And they summarize several of the key ones as the four Ps, the pathogens, 
and parasites and pesticides and also poor nutrition, by which we mean simply the lack of flowers, the lack of floral resources for bees in many landscapes, places that are urbanizing or developing and losing habitat, but also out in rural areas where our farming practices have changed dramatically over the last half century or so, shifting from a system of smaller farms and many crops in a particular landscape to very efficient farming of a single crop over large, large acreages. From road edge to road edge, without hedgerows or fallow areas that might provide nesting sites and flower resources for bees. So it's a bit counterintuitive now, but you tend to see in many places in rural areas very little habitat for bees. There could be a crop that blooms and provides wonderful bee habitat for three weeks out of the year, and then the rest of the time, it's a virtual desert. So several interesting studies now, including one on the outskirts of London, they looked at bee diversity from the rural areas in towards the center of the city and in fact found more bees in the suburbs and in urban areas where there were parks and backyards full of flowers and gardens and these sorts of things than they did out in the farmlands where there was very little for the bees other than the brief bloom of whatever crop happened to be on order. So we see a combination of factors that's really leading to an overall crisis in bee health, not just honeybees, but also many native species as well. What are some efforts that humans are making to help bees? Well, the good news is that even though the challenges are complicated and difficult to study and tease apart, the factors that might lead to any particular decline, we know enough to help. We know enough to take action in very specific ways for bees because they respond quickly to help. They respond when we plant flowers for them. It's one of the few places in conservation biology where you can experience instant gratification. You can plant flowers and increase the bee diversity in a habitat in a single season. So that is part of the good news. We know enough that if we reduce pesticide use in an area, the bees will respond. And all of those things that we have control over, those factors that we can manipulate, help to increase the health of bees and make them more resilient when they're facing some of the things that we have less control over, like the pathogens or the parasites that might be loose in a population. We can't go out and inoculate all the bees, but we can make sure they're well-fed. We can make sure they're not stressed out by chemicals in their environment, do everything we can to increase their health, and we do, in fact, see bees responding quickly. So even though there are significant challenges facing bees and many species in decline in many different landscapes, we know they respond quickly to efforts to conserve them. Would you tell the story of bees and almond orchards? Oh, this is a marvelous example of just this very issue. And that is if you look down in the Central Valley of California, where most of our almonds are grown, over a million acres now of almond orchards in that wonderful, fertile Central Valley. But it's the classic example, or one of them, where you have something that's marvelous for bees for just a few weeks out of the year. Because almond trees must be bee-pollinated. They can't be pollinated by wind or any other factor. They're a bee-pollinated tree. And so every almond that you eat has a bee in its history. But, of course, this is a vast acreage now of one crop. 
and very few hedgerows or any other natural sorts of areas for the local bees to subsist. So there are very few bees in that landscape. So to get them pollinated, growers are now dependent upon importing and renting commercial hives from all over North America. People come with their commercial hives from Maine and Florida for this brief few weeks while the almond groves are in bloom. And it's a very expensive part of actually producing almonds is getting your almond trees pollinated. So there's a real interest then from the standpoint not only of people concerned about bee diversity, but from the growers themselves. How can we bring more bees into our landscape, reintroduce bee habitat to take some of the pressure off of these imported honeybees, provide more pollination in the landscape, and also provide a greater diversity of food for honeybees when they're visiting that landscape. Because the honeybees for these commercial hives that move from crop to crop, they have kind of a crummy diet, if you can imagine. Eating one thing for three, four weeks and then being trucked over on a semi to another landscape where you get, you know, apple blossoms for a month. You know, one thing after another and little diversity at one time. So by providing more flowers, planting hedgerows and what have you, Orchardists there in California have learned they can triple the diversity and abundance of bees in their landscape in a single season. Again, it happens very quickly. Those bees find these places and the turnover is very rapid in terms of utilizing them. And it also provides better habitat for those visiting honeybees. So it really has shown to be a very beneficial restoration effort on both sides of that equation. Good for the bees and good for the growers as well. What are the prospects for the future of bees? Well, the future of bees really depends in many ways upon us. What are we willing to do and what can we do to help them? So we do know enough to take action and try to reduce the threats that we have control over. And as we mentioned, those are things like helping them with nutrition, more flowers and landscapes which we can all participate in, whether we have a backyard or whether we are in a community with a park that could have bee habitat, whether we're in the city and we have a window box that could provide nectar and pollen for bees. We can help in a very satisfying, real, hands-on way. We can help reduce pesticide use in our own lives and also by encouraging less pesticides in our farming habits. And then there are other things, too, stressing bees that are stressing many of our natural systems, things like climate change, where, again, we all play a role as individuals and as a society in the choices that we make to try to reduce the pressure on natural systems. All of those things will help bees and will increase our feeling of hope for the future. Well, what's the message you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, the message is get out there and do it. Get out there and do it. I highly encourage people. Now we're moving into the fall where bees are, many of them in their hibernation now until the next season. You'll see some honeybees still around in our landscapes and a few bumblebees that are brave, but most of them now are tucked into a nest somewhere. But I encourage people to get involved by getting out there and planting something and sitting down and observing bees on a flower and you will be fascinated, you will be rewarded, and the bees will benefit too. Well, thanks so much for being here, Tor. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. You are just listening to Tor Hansen, author of the book, Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees, published in 2018 by Basic Books. For more information, check on the web at torhanson.net. That's T-H-O-R-H-A-N-S-O-N dot N-E-T. 
Sustainability segment interviews are available as podcasts, along with KEXP's music podcasts. Go to the podcast section of KEXP's website at kexp.org. I'm Diane Horn. Thanks for listening on listener-powered 90.3 FM by mobile app and at kexp.org.